I just got to tell you a little um, bit about myself. Here's, here's what makes me tick. Um, <laughs> I absolutely value authenticity. I can't stand inauthentic people, inauthentic organizations, canned stuff, cheesy stuff, cliches, anything that doesn't feel real to me. I have this problem. I actually react to it. And it's not a good thing. Um, I will judge and critique quicker than anybody when something just doesn't feel authentic. I can't stand that I have to stand here most Sundays, you know, to wait for like the band to finish so that it's so that it doesn't take like a minute for me to walk up because um, that feels inauthentic to me. But I, you know. Walking up for a minute while people are sitting there feels kind of stupid too. See, you get caught in these weird tensions. Does that make sense? Um, I hate that uh, with four kids, um, I, my best just doesn't even come close to meeting my expectations for myself. And I'm tired all the time. And the, and, and the only people that would understand me are, are families with like three or four kids, which is a, a small little select group, right? And, and that bugs me, that nobody else would understand what it's like having four kids. Um, and, it, and it bugs me that I can't whine without looking like a whiner, okay? <laughs> and um, it bugs me sometimes that I go to lunch or coffee with someone that I really deep down want to connect with, like want to make a deep, lasting connection with so that they walk away affirmed and just are excited about our friendship and somehow I can sit there for an hour and, and lose sight of it and talk about meaningless stuff or over talk or get on rabbit trails and then it's gone and I get, you know, get in my car and I'm like, how did I just miss that opportunity to connect? And I hate that my idea of who I could be in terms of holiness or in terms of perfection is always so right out there and yet I myself, the real self, never really seem to be able to live up to that standard. Um, I, I hate those things. It bugs me. I hate guilt and I hate failure and I hate weakness and I hate... Um, difficulty, because life is difficult. And I don't know if you're like me, but we carry around a lot of baggage. I hate financial stress. And, and I hate that, on one hand, I'm supposed to not worry about it, because God says, I'll take care of you. And on the other hand, I'm supposed to worry about it, because I've got four kids, and I've got um, a wife. And on the business side, I've got people that, that work, in some sense, for me, I'm their boss, and, and I feel a, a sense of responsibility to take care of them. And I, I hate that tension of worry and faith, and I, I don't know how to always resolve that. And I, I don't like not being perfect. And so I love Christmas. And the reason I love Christmas is this, because um, Christmas is a diversion. Christmas is a great way for me, has been in my life, a great way for me to hide from a lot of the mess that I feel or the angst that's in my soul and in my heart. Um, I love the nostalgia. I, I like Bing Crosby singing White Christmas. I really do. Um, I love just the, 
the tradition and the touch points. I love um, all the energy from everybody else. I love that it's a distraction. I love that it's easy to spend money that I shouldn't spend but not feel guilty about it. Do you know, I, I, re- I don't know where I read the statistic, but I read the other day that men spend more money on themselves during December than any other month of the year. I mean, they actually get out and go into stores, and once they start seeing things, you know how men are, once they get ahead of steam going, they just don't stop, and they're like, whoa, and they actually spend more money on themselves in the month of December than any other time, because we don't really feel guilty. The money just goes, um, you wives, by March, you'll figure out what they bought for themselves. Where did that come from? Um, but you see, we've got this problem. I've got this problem. You've got this problem. And it's there, and it's real, and we deal with it all the time. And Christmas becomes, for us, a diversion from this problem. It's cotton candy. To me, Christmas has become cotton candy. It's a way for me to, for a short little period, escape the complexities and the difficulties of being human. That's how I use it. Now, here's the interesting thing. So if you're in Luke, let's look at Luke 2.25. This is when Jesus is being presented at the temple and it says, Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout and he was waiting for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it was revealed to him about um, Christ's coming and moved by the Spirit he went into the temple courts. When the parents brought in the child Jesus uh, to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took took him and blessed him. So this devout man was waiting for the consolation of Israel. If you skip down further, there's another passage in uh, verse 36. There's a prophetess, Anna. And uh, verse 38 says, Now when the parents came to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. There, was, there were people in Jesus' day that were eagerly awaiting the coming of Christ. They were longing to see the day of the Lord. I mean, they were sitting around, their only hope being when this Messiah, Deliverer, comes, then it will be set right. And they look forward to it because there's a spiritual reality that needs to be solved or fixed. There's a a legitimate need and they're just longing for God to save them. Now, when I look forward to Christmas, I usually have this dilemma. It's supposedly about Christ, Christmas, okay, which comes from um, Christ Mass, if if you're out of the Catholic tradition. Christ Mass, you know, on that holiday became Christmas, and we celebrate that, but it's supposed to be about Christ. But yet, there's these presents I get, and like the good food that people make once a year. And so there's something to look forward to, and then there's this inert 
kind of symbolic object. So what do we look forward to? We look forward to the stuff of Christmas. Why? Because the Christmas that we're celebrating 2,000 years ago doesn't really have this element of looking forward to it, anticipation, eagerly awaiting. Does that make sense? So we fall into this trap of just because we're human, saying we're going to anticipate something we're looking forward to. So this cotton candy idea of Christmas, I look forward to that. I like it. Now the Christ part of it, I'm spiritual enough to try and put it in there, you know, leave Christ in Christmas and stuff like that. But it really doesn't have a dynamic right here, right now element to it. And so it just kind of gets put just here in my emotions. Does that make sense? Do you see what's happening? We see this past. And we miss the whole idea of salvation, that what God is doing in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, has this ongoing element. And, and in theology it's called justification, then sanctification, and someday when we go to heaven, glorification. Another way of saying that is, we were saved, are being saved, and will be saved. Salvation is this progressive ongoing element of taking us and making us into the image of Christ. We are each and every day being made new. And when we look at Christmas, we can be reminded that the problems that we feel, that the ideal can that I can't reach, you know, and the real can which I'm disappointed with, that is a problem that Jesus Christ is addressing in my life each and every day. My real needs, my deep needs, not just my felt need for diversion, those real needs are being addressed by Christ. When I come to Christmas, I'm talking about something right now and something I can also look forward to and anticipate. I'm not just looking back 2,000 years to what was already done. Do you understand how we fall into this trap of thinking that it's behind us and it's stopped working it's not a living thing we do that all the time and especially at christmas and jesus says you're the vine uh you're the branch and i'm the vine and if you're in me you're going to bear much fruit it is an ongoing progressive deep relational thing that is going to bear fruit in your life it's not something passive that you just sew a boy scout badge onto your vest and say now i'm a christian what do i do now well, I'll just change my language, maybe change some of the friends I hang out with, but it's a club. I, there's really nothing else going on. I already said the prayer. I already identified with Christ. Now what? And we have bad theology. And because of it, we don't understand anything like Christmas that would actually give us something to connect with our deep spiritual needs and not just our felt, I need cotton candy kind of needs. Now I think, well, let me just, I've got a, thing up here. Um, when I really, for, for the last time, got rid of God all the way my freshman year of college, I can tell you exactly what happened. It was a two-week period, and I listened to this song over and over by a band called Live. It was their first album, um, Mental Jewelry. But it's a song called The Tyranny of Tradition, and, and listen to what it says. It says this, I heard a lot of talk about this Jesus, a man of love and a man of strength, but what a man was 2,000 years ago means nothing at all to me today. He could have been telling me about my higher self, 
but he only lives inside my prayer. So what he was may have been beautiful, but the pain is right now and right here. Let it go, let it go, let it go, my friend, and let's get it back, let's get it back together. I bought that hook, line, and sinker. Why? Because he's stating the obvious. Our churches and our, our, our pulpits and our Christians in America treat Christianity and treat Christ the way that song expresses it. We do really treat him as a dead thing 2,000 years ago that we celebrate in a symbolic way. And so when the song comes along, it, it, it says those same things that I'm already kind of following. It just casts it in a different light. And for me, it made it easy just to go ahead and throw the whole thing out and say, that's right, it's dead. What, what am I doing wasting my time with that? And we have got to be smarter than that. Nowhere in Scripture, nowhere in our relationship with Christ does God ever give us the impression that it's a one-time thing and the relationship ends. And if we, if we actually act like, like there's a dynamic element to this, we'll present a different look to Christianity that not only will, will mean something to us and our families and, and just grow out of us, okay, life-giving, but it would make a song like this look silly. Um, if you're an extrovert and you know who you are, raise your hand right now. Okay? Raise your hand. Now I want you to stand up. You already committed yourself. <laughs> These are the people that if you ask them to lunch, you're going to probably pick up the tabs. So look around you and... Uh, Alright, all you extroverts that don't get embarrassed, I want you to just make noise. Okay, I'm going to start reading out of uh, Luke chapter 2, verse 8. And I just want you to make noise. Okay, so go ahead. One, two, three. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over the flocks at night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy. Good news of great joy. And it will be for all the people. Okay, thank you. Thanks, Cheryl. Um, I'll be honest with you. I think Christmas is a horrible teaching time. I think it's a horrible teaching time. Most pastor friends I know love Christmas. They think it's a wonderful teaching time. I think it's a horrible one. It's hard to teach when there's so much noise. I think it's hard for God to talk to us when there's so much noise. I think it's hard for us to really assimilate deep things into our hearts when there's so many distractions going on. I think it's a horrible teaching time. Um, and I also think I, I, I don't think. Like I told, I'm, I'm pretty black and white this way. I, I'm, I'm pretty critical deep down inside. And I, I hate the typical church Christmas message. And let me give it to you. Here it is. <clears throat> Here is your typical church Christmas message. You all are going to spend a lot of money buying stupid presents. If you're a good Christian, you'd take the same amount of money. Instead of buying stupid Christmas presents, you'd give it to the poor. Fair enough? Does that sound like the typical Christmas message? Okay. 
notice what we're doing to you. We're saying, you Christians that don't really deal with the deeper issues of your relationship with God and don't really understand the dynamic relationship that's going on between you and God. You don't have that. You've missed it and you've glossed over it. We're telling you, instead of taking your money and buying it for your family, take your same money and go and fix the world's problems and give to the poor. Go do. Be a type A. Earn God's love. Be better at doing. So we do the same problem that we usually do in the Christian church. And we take you and we bypass the heart and the gospel which was here to save us and to change us and to affect us so that out of that heart, out of appreciation and just a completely different spirit about us, out of that naturally would flow generosity. Okay? Instead of going through that with the gospel and grace and how grace changes us, we go right to action and works and doing and guilt. And from a pastor perspective, control and uniformity. I don't think that's the Christmas message. I don't think it's the Christmas message at all. Um, in Ezekiel chapter 10, I'll go ahead and read it. Well, let me draw it first. You have the temple in Jerusalem. Okay? And inside the temple, the Spirit of God dwelt. That sounds really spiritual and meaningless, right? Think about it for a second. At the center of your community, in the middle, God has tabernacled and, and taken up a tent and is living and dwelling in the midst of you. What does that symbolize? It symbolizes there's nowhere to go. Dad's here. It's safe. There's strength. There's everything that's needed. There's a, a balance to it all and a corrective for justice and for righteousness. There's the, the epitome of everything that we need dwelling right in the middle of our community. That is the pinnacle. In Revelation, when it talks about heaven and where we're going to be, the whole idea is we're going to be with God at the center. And because of that, we're just going to always worship. Because it's like being at like a Dallas Cowboys game. You just always are wanting to just praise. <laughs> when you're in the presence of majesty, okay, it's just naturally. And if you saw the game last night, you know, I'm, I'm grieving inside. But that's what being in the presence of God with Him at the center is going to do to us. It's huge. Ezekiel chapter 10. When I was in seminary, um, I remember asking my New Testament professor, I was like, hey, when like, the high priest was going into the, the Holy of Holies, the presence of God, and if he did it wrong, you know, hey, you would just die. Okay? How come when the Roman conquering generals came in like, and defiled the inner part of the temple, how come they didn't die either? And, and I remember it was the first time he pointed me to this passage. 
In Ezekiel chapter 10, I'll pick it up in verse 4. It says, Then the glory of the Lord rose from above the cherubim and moved to the threshold of the temple. Down in verse 18, Then the glory of the Lord departed from over the threshold of the temple. And you see that God is removing Himself from where He dwelt with His people. And what's going to come in now are going to be foreign invaders which are going to basically take over now and control and subjugate God's people. Put them in bondage. God departed. His glory left. It was gone. God was no longer with His people. So when these people were waiting for the Christ, the Messiah, to come, they were eagerly waiting for God to come back in some way to deliver them. They were slaves, they were in bondage, they were not free, they were alone, and they had legitimate needs. And the only thing that was going to satisfy that was the return of God to His people to set them free. So Matthew chapter 1. I'll read it off the screen. Then the virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel. Emmanuel meaning, God, or meaning with us and El being the Hebrew for God and it means God with us. So with Jesus coming right in the name, he's going to be called Emmanuel because God himself is coming back to be with his people He's coming to meet the depths of our needs all the way to the bottom, nothing left, to, to restore us, to save us, to anoint us, to lift us up, to fix what is really wrong with us. Now we make the same mistake that the people did in Jesus' time. They were looking at Rome and saying, we're under a foreign power, this guy needs to get the foreign power off us because liberation is the highest goal in our minds. We're on the flip side, we're in America, there's no foreign power over us, so we think we don't need Jesus because we're already liberated. And we mistake liberty for freedom. And Jesus came and he, he was humbled and he was working to fix the problem, the root problem spiritually, because he knew that freedom was the real issue. And a lot of you don't feel free. And you know that your spouse isn't really free. And you know that your friends have buttons. And you know that people have problems and hang-ups and patterns and behaviors and sin things going on. And they can't, no matter how hard they try or want, we just can't reach that bar. We're imperfect and we fall short of the glory of God. And Jesus came and says, I'm going to fix that. And I'm going to fix, ultimately, the biggest problem that comes from that. God is not with you. You're separated from God because of your sin. But now with me... God is going to be with you again. I'm paving the way for God to be with you. I'm here, and then when I leave, the Holy Spirit's going to come because the supreme thing is now going to dwell back in the middle, and it's going to restore what needs to be restored. Do you understand that? Jesus is God with us.
There's no bigger thing. Now, God could have come to discipline us because we fell short. And that's what's so fascinating about how he comes. He comes to a peasant woman in the form of an illegitimate child born on the side of a road. In all humility. Because God's presence coming back is not a punitive judgment on us. It is a loving, loving move on God's part to restore us and set us free. You know, my mom was an amazing mom, and uh, when I would break something, my mom would show up with a dustpan. She wouldn't yell at me. I yell at me, I'm just kidding. But my mom would come in humility to serve me because she wasn't going to judge me for falling short. She was going to help restore what was broke. And God came in the form of Christ in this, the most humble of circumstances because the idea of God's presence is not a punitive one. It's one of restoration and unity again. Jesus says in John 10 that the thief comes only to kill and destroy and to harm. I've come like a good shepherd, right? So that you may have life and have it to the full. When I'm with you, the shepherd in the middle of the sheep, with you, it restores everything and it's good. See, if you want to know about hell, here's a perfect, here's a perfect illustration. When God left, it was the supreme height of punishment with the foreign invaders coming in and carting off into slavery the Israelites. God's supreme form of punishment is when he takes his presence away. We think of God as an angry, heavy-handed father. It's a complete wrong picture. The worst thing God has done is when he removes himself and turns his back on us. It's why hell, when you, when you really get into the imagery of hell, it's always about being cast out. It's always about being alone. It's always about being separate from the glory of God. And this is hell when God walks away. This is heaven when Christ or when God comes to tabernacle with us. It's something we can look forward to. Tomorrow, Thursday, next year, you have the greatest thing at your disposal, if you would choose to turn to him and pursue that relationship, to grow that relationship more than anything else, and see yourselves as needing it. I almost entitled this message, and it won't make sense, but I almost entitled it, What Does Social Justice Have to Do with Christmas? What does social justice have to do with Christmas? And basically the idea is this. Um, you've heard me say it before. There's two kinds of people in this world. Those who are goofy and know it, and those who are goofy and don't know, and they're dangerous. If you know you're messy, if you know you're messed up, if you know you're not the perfect representation, if you know you're like a Disneyland caricature with big ears or big nose and you don't look right, then when Jesus comes to live with you, you're looking forward to that. You need that. The gospel means something when you don't think you need anything, it means nothing to you. What do I lack that he's going to provide? I'll do it, but I don't really care that much. Does that make sense? 
And so when we talk about giving our money to the poor or we talk about looking around at this world, if we understand the gospel, we're messy, we're goofy, and Jesus Christ in his grace, God in his grace, is going to accept me by giving himself to me, then we begin to understand what life's all about. That weird family member that always causes fights at Christmas. Don't buy an expensive present. Give him grace. Give her your whole self and not just a fake smile. Realize, but by the grace of God, you're in the same position as that individual. Realize that we have so much and there's people that have so little and if God is willing to put himself into humble positions and serve and endure hardship to help those people, can't we bow a knee and wash feet too? Can't we forego a little extra to help somebody else that, that really has need? We're going to take a love offering Christmas Eve after the service for some of the families in our church that don't have anything this Christmas. So the gospel, you understand the gospel is what changes us. We realize we're goofy, we need that grace, and that grace changes and affects everything about us. And as we move out, we move out different, not in pride and strength, but in a satisfied humility with God. That's what it has, you know, Christmas has to do with social justice to me. It's the whole idea of the year of Jubilee. In the book of Leviticus, every 50 years, God designed it this way, that your debts would be just completely canceled. Wouldn't that be nice? Visa, MasterCard, just gone. Okay? And you would get your land back. God says, I don't want the rich to get richer and the poor to get poorer and hardships to really injure you for a whole life. Every 50 years, it all comes back to even. You know, if you're in the Catholic tradition, you'd know in uh, 1984 and then again in 2000, John Paul uh, declared it a year of jubilee. You know, the Protestant tradition, we've forgotten this whole idea. But God designed it that way, and when Jesus came, it was the ultimate jubilee. God's saying, you guys aren't getting it right. Every 50 years, you, you like ignore the year of jubilee, and you don't let the land have its Sabbath rest and all this other stuff. And so, you know what? I'm going to remove myself. You're going to be punished, but I'm going to come back, and I'm going to be the jubilee for you. I'm going to cancel all debts. I'm going to set you free. I'm going to take you who fell short and make it so that you no longer fall short because Jesus is going to replace you and his goodness is going to be like your goodness. You get a little like swiper card going into the CIA building or whatever, but it doesn't have your picture on it. It has like the CEO or the head guy's picture on it, but you get the card. You have the access. And so it's the Jubilee thing all over again. Turn back again to Luke. This time, uh, Luke 2, verse 10. Now hear, hear me now on this one. This, this captures it all to me. Um, as I was just studying this week for this message, and, uh, in verse 10, I think we got it on the screen. Listen to what comes out in this. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were terrified. Why? God's a big God. I remember at Clemson, my freshman year, there was a lineman named Chester McLaughlin. You know, he went on to the NFL, but I went through the post office, and he was walking the other way. 
I was scared that he was going to trip and fall on me because I, I would have been done for. I mean, the guy was like 6'8", almost 400 pounds. I was terrified. He was just going to trip on me. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy. That will be for all the people. That word, good news there, in the Greek is euangelion, which is translated in the Old English, Godspell, which we know as gospel. This is the first time the gospel is mentioned in any of the books on Jesus' life, any of the four gospels. And I never really knew that until I dug, dug deep this week. It's the first time the gospel is mentioned. The good news that Jesus has come to set you free starts here at Christmas. So then what do we celebrate at Easter? The same thing. See, it's not, oh, it's not about like one date, you see. Do we do it at Christmas? Do we do it at Easter? When did that actual one-time thing happen? It's not a past thing. It, it's a past and a present and a future. It is the, our, our realest and deepest, most intimate need for a Savior to come and change us from the inside out. And the gospel begins at Christmas. And it's great joy. Great is a horrible word. If you're an English major, you know you don't use the word great. The Greek word here is megas. Megatron. Or mega. The gospel this Christmas of God coming and being with us is mega joy. It's not cotton candy. It doesn't just distract you from like the stress for like a little while until the day after Christmas. It's mega joy. It's I mean, it is mega joy. So Christmas is a horrible teaching time. I honestly believe that. So I don't have huge aspirations for where this can go. Um, but there's always a tipping point in each person's life. I, I've been meaning to work out again for six years. <laughs> and it just happened this last month. Justin and I started working out again. I'm already huge. <laughs> the uh, stage just makes me look small. Um, but there's a, there's a point when it actually happens. Things you've been planning for forever, there's a point when sometimes it actually happens. Your mega joy is found in Christ. Don't be distracted by anything else. The thing you want to invest your time in is your relationship with Christ. The way you're going to do it is when you realize that you actually have real needs and the only solution to those real needs is Christ so that you can look forward with anticipation to the times that you spend with Him, with Him, so that He can change you in a real way. We're going to be doing a sermon series on Augustine, St. Augustine, in the beginning of January. And one of my favorite quotes of Augustine was this, and his talking about his conversion. He said, You took me from behind myself, God, and put me in front of myself, and that has made all the difference. When I became aware of who I really was and what my needs really were, and I had the self-awareness to see all that, it made all the difference. And so Jesus, in the end of Revelation, writes to a church, you guys are missing it. You don't see yourself. You think you're rich, but you're actually blind and naked and poor and in need. And if you knew you were goofy, 
then grace would mean something to you and the gospel would do its work in your life. Would God take us from behind ourselves and put us in front of ourselves this Christmas? If we can get the great joy of the gospel, the good news, it will change everything. Romans is an amazing book, book uh, of Romans. The first 11 chapters talks about grace and the gospel and salvation. And then you know what it does like in verse 12? It has this big giant therefore. Therefore. In view of God's mercy, take your life and present it as a living sacrifice to God, holy and pleasing. And this is your spiritual act of worship. Plato, in his, uh, in his teachings on education, said the thing we're doing with people when we're educating them is teaching them to respond appropriately to what it is that's going on. So if something horrible is going on, they would respond with horror. If something awesome was going on, they would respond in awe. Does that make sense? And, and Plato said when you educate, you teach people the appropriate way to react and respond to things. And Paul says, after 11 chapters of talking about God's grace, listen to me now, Therefore, in view of God's mercy, in view of God coming and being with you in a humble way, not because you deserved it, but because you needed it, in view of that mercy, respond this way. It's the appropriate way. Present your life to Him. Put it at the center. It's the most important thing. This is holy and pleasing to God. It's your spiritual act of worship. It's the best thing that you can do this Christmas or any other day. Silence um, allows you to feel a lot of tension and ask a lot of questions. Um, last thing I'd say is beware of noise. Um, find time to be silent. Dads, moms, for your families this week, find time for them to be silent. that we could hear what God is saying about His love for us and desire to fix what is wrong, the real needs that we have. Let's pray. God, give us a passion. Give us our strongest passion for You in you alone. May we thirst, may we hunger, may we pursue, may we seek, may we look forward and longingly forward to our Messiah who is willing to and wants to, who's knocking at the door, who desires nothing more than to serve and to make us whole. May you reign above all other things in our life. In Christ's name.